You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. This is Daniel Kaufman, host of the Sophia program and editor and publisher of the Electric Agorian online magazine. A brief announcement before the video plays. These will be the last two videos that will be hosted on meaningoflife.tv. Sophia will no longer be hosted on meaningoflife.tv. Instead, Sophia is going to be hosted on the Electric Agora's webpage alongside expanded additional content that's going to be produced by Robert Gressis, Kevin Curry-Knight, and perhaps from some of the other Electric Agora contributors. So in addition to Sophia, you'll be able to uh, watch or listen to entirely new programs that will also be hosted on what will be a new wing of Electric Agora, and that is Electric Agora Podcasts. Links to both uh, the Electric Agora's uh, homepage, to the new podcast page, and to our dedicated Electric Agora Podcast YouTube channel will appear in the uh, description below the video. And right now, as we transition, we will have the streaming videos available both on the Electric uh, Agora's uh, website as well as on the dedicated YouTube channel. But we will soon be adding an audio podcast uh, dimension to the Electric Agora. All the programs that will be available as streaming video will also be available as audio podcasts. And some of the programs, the new programs that come out may be audio only. That hasn't yet been decided. Um, but they will be hosted on all the major uh, podcasting platforms. And as always, all the content that Electric Agora produces will be free of charge and will not be behind any paywalls. Uh, it's been a wonderful six years here at meaningoflife.tv. I'm certainly sad to be going. Um, I made a lot of very good friends, uh, friends here, and um, I hope very much that uh, our audience will follow us over to the Electric Agora and uh, will perhaps try out some of the new, uh, the new shows that we will be uh, creating as well. So I uh, just wanted to put a little brief note before the uh, dialogue starts, and now on to the dialogue. David Ollinger, good to be with you again. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to everyone in uh, Sophia land, uh, um, part of the meaningoflife.tv and bloggingheads.tv network. Sophia is available on streaming video and audio podcast. I'm Daniel Kaufman, your host. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University, and I edit and publish an online magazine called The Electric Agora, of which David Ottlinger is one of our writers uh, and um, also uh, has hosted uh, episodes of Sophia. And so I'm happy to be with you again. Do you just at this point just describe yourself as a intellectual at large? Is that what you sort of? <laughs> if I'm forced to describe myself, yes. <laughs> intellectual at large sometimes um, pretends to be Peter Jackson and um, um, gets interviewed about Lord of the Rings. Hey, it's hard to get haircuts in the pandemic, Dan. Don't assess me. <laughs> no, you, come on. Don't tell me no one has said that you don't look like Peter, like you look like Peter Jackson in terms of your face. I'm getting it more now. I've filled out a little too from since the pandemic. So, <laughs> um, David, um, 
tell us what we're talking about. Tell everyone what we're talking about today. What are we talking about today? Uh, Nietzsche's eternal recurrence of the same. No, I'm sorry, Justin Weinberg. I was going to say, I don't know anything about that, dude. (laughs) Um, Now, we are talking about Justin Weinberg, but we're using Justin Weinberg as an entry point to talking about an issue that's not just about him. This isn't just going to be philosophy insider baseball. Justin Weinberg, of course, is the uh, editor and publisher of the Daily Noose, which is one of two major philosophy insider blogs the other one being lighter reports um and um yeah if, I, go ahead if, if, if you don't see a parallel between the conversation we're going to have and what's going on at the new york times and what's going on at the uh pulitzer prize committee and what's going on everywhere else um you're not paying attention uh when i I know people are paying attention. Uh, so, yeah. it, yes, it's a very, it's a broadly relevant topic, sadly. So why don't you get us into it? What, what is it about? What has happened in Weinbergia lately that has led us to um, this uh, topic? Yeah, so it starts, as everything does, at the Leibniz Zentum Allgemeine uh, Sprachwissenschaft. Uh, Sprachwissenschaft. Yes, that's the full title. I only speak um, French. I don't speak German. You have to. <laughs> can you say that in French? Uh, yeah, I no, I, I don't. Uh, I don't really know German, but I did look this up, and it's um, the Leibniz Center for General Linguistic Research. Okay. Um, which uh, I I. My friend, the only guy I know who studied in Germany, hasn't heard of it, but then he might not have. Uh, it seems to be a pretty big deal, pretty uh, big institution. It was, it's not university affiliated, but it's created, it's public, it's created by um, uh, state and federal uh, German government, which apparently Berlin's a state Um the way they're organized and it's a big center, big old building in Berlin. Um, and they do mostly from what I can gather from just looking at their website, uh, a lot of straight ahead linguistics research, lexicography, language acquisition, um, phonetics, all that kind of stuff. Um, and they pride themselves on being in all fields, uh, all fields of general linguistics. So that's generally what they do. Obviously not pretty political, but wanting to cover all bases, they're also interested in the kind of political implications of language. Uh, Certainly been a big topic since at least, uh, you know, been a huge topic since 1960 in a lot of, uh, areas, um, language and politics. Um, And in that spirit, they were running a seminar on, or a conference or whatever they want to call it, on language and oppression. Oppression. Oppression, yes. And um, they offered, they invited her frequently mentioned, but not yet seen, uh, a friend of Sophia, Kathleen Stock, 
Yeah, Kathleen Stock, the the well-known gender critical uh, philosopher in the UK, who's been fighting some of the um, uh, self ID and other uh, trans related public policy uh, issues over in the UK, and has come under sustained ferocious attack um, from within philosophy. Um, um, just to fill people in. And she's at the University of Sussex and I've known her for more than 20 years going back to my my old, yeah, because she's a, she was an officer in the British Society of Aesthetics and for six years in a row back in the early 2000s, I was giving papers at their annual meetings in Oxford. And so I would be socializing with her and being in, you know, at at papers with her um, year after year after year. So I, I know her pretty well. Um, as one does from these things. I mean, I don't know her intimately or personally. I mean, we're not personal friends in that way. But when I saw her starting to get savaged, uh, I started uh, defending her. And then that sort of dragged me into the whole trans activist, gender critical feminism stuff. And that's how I got into it. Anyway, go on. So uh, do you want to invited just... to this thing? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to state briefly, briefly what gender critical is? And- yeah, so the, the gender critical feminism um, distinguishes itself from sort of mainline, mainstream feminism um, I would, I, I'd say in two ways. One is that it tends to be very uh, gender skeptical, meaning it's skeptical not just of the whole concept of gender identity, but all the discourse and all the, all the policy implications that follow from it. Um, and um, she, um, um, and so, and at the more theoretical level, I would say that gender critical feminism more harkens back to the second wave of feminism than to its later waves. The later waves are sometimes referred to in the discourse as lib fems, um, and the gender critical feminists are sort of called are referred to as rad fems sometimes. Mm-hmm. But all of this terminology is very slippery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, and then the the key thing for the gender criticals is that they think in certain important respects, um, trans people are not the gender they identify with, but that they, um, that at least in some important contexts, they really count as the gender that we would generally associate with their biological sex. Right. So it's, it has to do with things like uh, women's sports, uh, mm-hmm. women's intimate um, environments, changing rooms, bathrooms, etc. cetera, um, uh, rape prisons. shelters, and then prisons is a big one. Yeah. Um, um, and also in weird air ways, sort of like, for example, crime reporting, right? Increasingly mm-hmm. now, you know, you know, person X murders somebody and person X is, is a, is a woman identified is now being reported, you know, a woman murdered somebody in newspapers mm-hmm. and in crime reports and things like that. So gender critical feminists are involved in, in sort of all of those ground level um, issues that are, that are currently pretty hot politically. Um, and I would say that the, this whole subject has advanced further in the UK than it has in the US. In the US, the fight really hasn't been joined yet. Um, 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 but in the UK, the fight has been pretty fierce. Yeah, um, that's certainly true. Um, so that's what gender critical is. Kathleen Stock is gender critical. Um, I hope that 
people understand why that's highly controversial. Um, so Kathleen Stock was um, invited to this conference at the LiveNet Center, and then uh, people started, particularly one woman uh, who was also invited to the conference, behind the scenes reached out to the organizers of the conference and said that she did not want Kathleen Stock to be there. She felt uncomfortable around her and they felt uncomfortable around her because of these things she said, um, particularly the positions that we outline that she maintains uh, in her public work. Yes. Um, so the LiveNet Center uh capitulated and disinvited Kathleen Stock. Um, and this is now being debated. Um, and they also that, gave a bunch of reasons um, that many uh, challenged as being uh, disingenuous. Um, right. They even changed the, the, t the title of the, of the conference retroactively in order to make it look like she hadn't been deplatformed, but simply it had been a mistake inviting her in the first place. I mean, it really was an incredible exercise in institutional That's, dishonesty, but it's one that shouldn't surprise anyone because this now seems to be happening all the time across a variety of institutions. Yeah. That's shades of Orwell there. She's being, uh, <laughs> the, being sort of rubbed out of pictures and you had yeah. to recti rectify the record as getting Smith all did. the newspapers back and like, you know, cutting <laughs> yeah. the article out and sort of, you know, it's right. really, uh, yes. Um, and so that I suppose brings us to Justin Weinberg. Uh, right. So what does he have to do with this? Well, he has, been on this hobby horse of speech and trans issues for quite some time. People may remember uh, you and I recorded a thing about another dialogue about other uh, statements he made on how to negotiate uh, speaking about these issues, uh, which we'll return to to some extent. Um, but he also, since he runs a website which kind of covers news and philosophy, he felt understandably obliged to comment on this. And I would call his a comment uh, equivocal, uh, or at least ambivalent. Uh, I, is that a fair characterization? Uh, you know, I, it's very hard with him because... Um he's very both passive aggressive and, and, and dissembles a lot. And so what happens is um, I actually think he's completely committed to the trans activist position. Um, it's evident in everything he does. Right. Um, um, but he always wants to pretend a kind of, if not neutrality, a kind of um, above it all kind of stance and so what winds up happening is you'll get these essays where he'll sort of on one level be presenting this as some, as a somewhat dispassionate observer, but then you'll, there's all sorts of little like backhands and, 
and sort of passive aggressive little slaps and sneers and all sorts of things here and there that he'll then sort of pepper it with um, that, that, that will give anybody who's paying attention. Who's not, you know, like sleepwalking a very clear sense of what, where, where he stands on this. Right. But yes, okay. I mean the, the overt ostensible tone of it is ambivalent. Yes. Okay, that's farther than I, I would go. Actually. Fair enough. I mean, that's my um, you know, personal judgment. Um, I, I think he's, I mean, he, he's... He's hosted hit pieces on her so many times. Yeah. And has never sort of done the opposite, right? And so I just don't buy this idea that somehow he's really... It's pretty it. clear he believes one that the gender critical positions, the, their theses are false Two, that he thinks the arguments for uh, gender critical uh, uh, positions are very bad and unscholarly. And three that he thinks he's, and the, here he's even more dodgy, but I think his language just has made it clear too many times. He believes those arguments are being made in bad faith. Yeah. And um, four, he think he's said over and over again, he's been, he's, he's scoffed at the idea of cancel culture and five, um, he denies that there's kind of a woke orthodoxy in, in philosophy and especially in these areas um, uh, and has said so uh, explicitly to me um, um, and actually wrote when I, when my, when my interview with Clifford Sosis for what is it like to be a philosopher went up um, um, he wrote a whole essay about it and basically did so. Huh? I didn't catch that one. Oh yeah. He wrote a whole essay about it um, and in order to con contradict my claim in that interview that there's a woke orthodoxy in philosophy um, and then ended the essay with a picture, a photo of a sculpture of excrement. <laughs> and then when called on it, denied that it was put there to sort of punctuate his feelings about me and about my interview. Um, and Dan Tippins took him to task in the comment section and said, you've fucking got to be kidding me if you think anybody is stupid enough to believe. So you have to understand my, my, my experiences with Weinberg are so, are so negative and are so, um, and it's been so often. And all of this, by the way, was after I'd invited him onto Sophia and I thought was very fair, fair with him and kind with him. He then goes and just shits all over me. Um, um, and so I just, Almost literally. Yeah, I just, I just, um, I have very strong opinions about him. I think he's one of the, you know, worst offenders in our discipline for this sort of woke takeover, and 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 because he controls a pretty a pretty powerful organ in the Daily News, um, he he he's in a position to do a lot of a lot of damage. Um, um, I don't think child. the woke, I don't think the wokest would be getting nearly where they're getting in our discipline if it wasn't for him. So anyway. That's just long-winded, um, but but go on, please. Um, so he wrote this essay about about the Kathleen Stock defenestration, the latest defenestration, um, and and you characterize it as ambivalent. So what would you? What did you? What, what what about it inspired you to say, hey, we should talk about this in a more general vein? Yeah, well, it's part of a larger pattern, right? But um, basically, what he said, commenting on Stock's disinvitation is um, that 
he would understand why uh, they would not want to have stock, but that basically they should have figured that out before they invited her. And then it was kind of, it was genuinely bad form to invite her and then disinvite her. Yeah. Um, so he is, and I, I contrary to your characterization, I'm, I'm, I think he's genuine and I, I have a, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of searching out the minds of people in this kind of woke set. Um, I, I think a lot of them are sincere that they believe in freedom of speech um, and that they're trying to find a middle path and trying to respect people's speech rights and also be uh, sensitive to people's identities and trying to create an inclusive space to use their kind of language. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so, but, but let me ask you about that though. I mean, and I, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to contest, you know, arguing about people's motives as really diminishing returns. So I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not even going to present what I said before about Weinberg as an argument. It's more my impression just from, from so many dealings with him. Um, but you know, Look, the whole freedom of speeching is fraught, right? I mean, first of all, it's ambiguous. I mean, if you just mean freedom from government censorship, then I would agree that they're all on board with that. Um, if you mean something more like freedom in the face of social censorship, a la John Stuart Mill, it gets more complicated because you could even say that they are on board with that, but they simply interpret the harm constraint in such a broad way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, let me ask you this. Wait, wait. Yeah, go ahead. You have, you have, yeah. to, you have to say what the harm constraint is. So the harm, the harm principle is, you know, John Stuart Mill basically says that people should be able to see and do what they like so long as they don't harm others, right? Um, 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 and that that should be true when I say can do what they like. That should be true both in the, with regard to governmental interference as well as um, with regard to uh, social censorship, right? Because Mill spends as much time, if not more, on social censorship than he does on governmental censorship. No, no, he, he, he spends the entirety of yeah. On Liberty on social yeah. censorship. Yeah. He, he just mentions government censorship at the beginning and puts it Say, aside. Say, I'm not talking about that, right. Right. Um, so, um, but anyway, um, um, so what I was going to ask you was, um, certainly it's true that, if you accept the expansion of the harm principle, then they, even the wokists are even consistent with John Stuart Mill's conception of freedom uh, of Liberty and freedom of expression. But is it your impression that they are uh, being honest in their claims of harm? Because it's not my, I, I don't think that I think that that, I think they're being cynical and manipulative and engaging in a lot of emotional, <laughs> a lot of emotional blackmailing is what I think they're engaging with. So every dialogue we have, we end up at this point. Oh yeah, uh, stupid or bad, right? Those are the two sort of like you know. Well, no, 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 no. It's 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 much more um, <laughs> uh, honest or cynical. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I'm always telling you, there's to be human is to be somewhere in between those two. So you um, think Weinberg really thinks that someone is harmed? Yes. In a relevant sense, in a relevant sense, simply by being on the same conference with Kathleen Stock. 
Absolutely. That's what Ezra Klein believes. That's what Lindy West believes. And you think they actually believe this, that it's not a cynical game? Yes. Now... Okay. Fair enough. I mean, uh, I don't agree, but fair enough. I mean, it's not like I can prove it, right? I mean... um, Yeah. I mean, I can tell you, I've read a lot of this. I like listening to interviews these guys do, and I'm really trying to understand... But don't you think that that sort of suggests that they're kind of stupid in a way that's implausible? No, I don't think it's stupid. Um, I think it's... uh, You don't think it's stupid to say that someone is being harmed in some relevant sense simply by being in the same conference with Kathleen Stock? You don't think that's stupid? No. Really? No. How is... how? In what plausible sense is somebody harmed by being in a conference with somebody else? It's their view of uh, human psychology and identity, and um, they think that uh, somebody denying my identity in my presence is um, an extremely... It it's sort of like the equivalent of somebody walking into a conference naked or um, putting out a whole you know string of epithets or um, I mean look there are straightforwardly nonviolent or there are things that neither pick my pocket nor break my leg in Jefferson's words that we would all agree are inappropriate speech. Um, You know, using the most inflammatory racial slurs or ethnic slurs or... um, They have the same sort of reaction to... So saying that you think that what you think that there's a relevant, non-cynical, serious sense in which saying women are female is like using extreme racial epithets to a black person. Look, I, I don't, that's all that they're saying. I mean, they're not saying they're not going up to trans people and saying you should die in a fire. They're saying women are females. I'm and telling if you, they weren't, if they weren't, there'd be nothing to transition to or from. Right. I mean, that that's sort of, I mean, you know what I mean? What they're rejecting is all this crazy gender metaphysics that that's being proposed. Now you're telling me that that's that that's in a non-cynical way plausibly harming like yelling the n-word at a black person is? I just find I'm that telling, incredible. I'm telling you that they really experience it that way. So it's not stupidity and it's not cynicism. Now though it it's sounds a, to me like you're ascribing a level of mental illness that I think is not plausible, right? I mean, that strikes me as a person who's got such profound problems that they probably shouldn't even go outside. Right. I mean, this this seems like it should require institutionalization if this is how you're looking at the world. Right. Well, but it's, it's not mental illness. It's ideological illness. Okay. Or uh, I'll I'll, I'll back off. I want you to go on, please. There. I mean, yeah, I think their ideas are complete, are really self-consistent. Um, and, and until they aren't, but that's true of some every other true of everything, right? that's, yeah, uh, uh, or at least everyone I disagree with, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, uh, but 
they're yeah. What, what makes them seem so difficult for people who don't accept them to have, to accept them? Uh, what makes them seem so foreign or implausible is that they're so radically different from the way you and I uh, see the world or understand agency, morality, politics, which is one of the things I've been saying going back years um, is these people sort of use the standard idiom of kind of American civic life of free speech, individual rights, and they mean it when they say it, but their ideas are radically inconsistent with them, with those ideas, and ultimately radically inconsistent, really, with democracy. Um, and I say that advisedly, and I, it was very striking to see Roxanne Gay um, in, in an aside. You significant should probably say who she is. Uh, Roxanne Gay is definitely uh, a woke set person, um, black F, uh, female writer, writes about being black and female and uh, her history of sexual assault and being overweight and, you know, what that's like, yeah. uh, etc. In an aside, in a recent article, she said that American democracy was not worth saving. And that really, I was kind of, <laughs> it's a weird thing to take heart from it. Uh, but I looked at that and said, well, finally someone said it. Because uh, I, I said I'm that sure, they I'm, I'm sure Sierra Leone would be happy to have her. I mean, you know, I'm, you know <laughs> yeah, right. she might not be very happy when she got there, but um I mean, when I hear stuff like that, I don't even know what to say. I mean, it's just like, are you serious? Well, I mean, like, <laughs> you think what comes after is going to be better, but that's, yeah, every, everything's a rabbit hole, but, um, so, so Weinberg's ambivalent. You, you think he's genuine about it. Um, mm -hmm. um, you think he, he at least thinks that he's really for free speech and, and, so what what about this though particular essay and about this particular incident did you think was worth um sort of generalizing upon? Well, he this connects to a previous trans scandal that we don't need to recap. Uh, but this same issue of should the gender critical people be allowed to uh argue their positions in, in sort of as sort of members of the philosophical profession in good standing. Should they be hosted? Should they be allowed in journals? Should they be, you know, um, um, a trans philosopher had written this very emotional thing on Medium that, sh that they were leaving philosophy because of transphobia and Kathleen Stock again. Um, and um, Weinberg wrote a very sympathetic essay about that, uh, which I lampooned, um, and I'll link to, the, to that. Um, and, the yeah, and the question was, and this this tra this trans philosopher suggested some very extreme measures. She said that journal editors should refuse to publish gender critical pieces, conferences should not host gender critical uh, scholars, and um, that uh, even even popular media should uh, should not platform them. Um, and that, in a sense, everyone in philosophy should should take as foundational and axiomatic 
that trans people are the gender they say they are and that this is not up for discussion in philosophy. Um, and Weinberg was very, quite positive. I mean, Weinberg didn't agree with all of this, but he was extremely sympathetic and, and positive. Um, so he, ha we have, he has gone around this territory a bunch of times. What, what did you find particularly notable in this one with regard to um, things that we might generalize about? Because we don't want to talk about Weinberg forever. So no. um, what's, the um, what's the issue? What's the issue? Sorry, I, I hate to add another preamble, but I wanted to say You're one the king thing. Of the preambles. They should have, good thing you didn't write the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. We'd still be waiting for it. <laughs> there would be like 27 oh. clauses, right? But, um, boy, more prolix than Jefferson. I should be in trouble. But um, we've said a lot of very negative things about Weinberg already. I stand by them. Um, I don't take them back. He can take it. He's a big shot. But, you know, he did, uh, he linked to a piece I wrote after I had been very critical of him, uh, which was just arguing about him with him about a TV show. And I thought that was uh, a good show and I appreciated it. And um, I do think he's in some ways sincere and he's at least made an effort to kind of respond to critics so I appreciate that at all. And at the end of the day, they can't get rid of us and we can't get rid of them. So right. we got we to gotta find some kind of way. So I do want to have this be, um, well, I'll sound that one generous note and you'll probably forget it before I'm done talking. So uh, he in the previous piece that he wrote, he kind of charted out his position as how we should approach gender critical speech. Uh, it had been proposed that they should be basically excluded from uh, the usual organs of the discipline, conferences, journals, etc. And he wrote a piece taking up that idea and taking a certain amount of flack from his own side, right? Yeah. And he said, he, he, in answer to the question, should we exclude these people? He said, and I'm quoting now, my answer to this question is no. Or perhaps more accurately, no but. So he goes on to flesh out what no but means, but I think we have an intuitive sense of what it means, right? Um, and this recent case of Stock's disinvitation is we are now seeing what a no-but approach to, to speech is in practice. And it doesn't work, I will argue, and it couldn't have worked. Um, we, to really be free speech, to really have a, a rigorous academic discipline, I'm sorry, no-but doesn't cut it. It just has, you need to erase that but and just say no. Um, and let, me ask you, let, let me ask you, so, so, cause let's get now into the no, but freedom of speech. Cause that's the, that's the issue that we're here to discuss. Um, did he actually say, and he said, no, did he actually say no, but he did yeah. say no, but didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He actually, no, I'm saying you were not paraphrasing. That was a quote. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, 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 but isn't even, look, aside from super radical libertarianism, 
mm-hmm. isn't even a pretty strong free street speech regime, no but to begin with. I mean, you're not going to want to, I mean, whatever you're going to say, I assume you're not going to, you're not going to say we should allow libel, right? Um, or incitement to riot or, or, you know, treasonous communications with an enemy, you know, with the people we're at war with. So, or, or just straightforwardly criminal, you know. Right, uh, right. So, so, so what kind of a no, but you're talking about a no, but that's within a frame that already is kind of somewhat no buddy. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. so maybe be a little more precise and, and what kind of no, but you're talking about. Right. This is um, w- w- what you've just, sort of sketch there is a very common sort of anti-free speech uh, argument. Uh, Stanley Fish is one of the most famous um, uh, people to use this type of argument. And um, sadly, uh, Natalie Wynn has used it recently. You hear it a lot. It's like, they're inevitably going to be some rules. Yeah. So, and everybody agrees with that. Everyone affirms time, manner, and place restrictions. Everybody refer, prefers uh, restrictions um, on sort of wildly inflammatory speech or um, inciting riots, et cetera, et cetera. So since there are some rules, we're just arguing over where exactly to draw the line, um, uh, Ezra Klein likes to talk about boundaries and spheres. And so we all agree in free speech. Um, we just are having uh, just us kind of among a, a sort of intramural, intraliberal conversation about where that line happens to go. And, and why, do you think that's, why do you think that that's incorrect? Yeah. I think that's wildly incorrect. Yeah, but that's um, important to ex- explain why, because right. on the, what you just said actually sounds pretty plausible. So, so yeah. explain what, why, despite its seductive sound, it's actually completely wrong. So one of the basic criteria we can use here is um, there is consensus about moral values. You know, we exclude uh, neo-Nazis from most, though importantly not all, but most kinds of public discourse. They're not on the news uh, giving their opinion. They're not um, invited to important speaking engagements. They're not uh, even sort of lower tier I guess with caveat, with with some caveats, right? I mean – had David Duke won a Senate seat, he certainly would have been on news programs, right? Well, okay. So that's – put a pin in that because I'll, I'll, I'll return that. to I'll it. put a pin in that, yeah. Um, You're but, right. They're not being interviewed for the New York Times when they're trying to get perspectives on X. They're not, they're not in, invited to panels in which you, you know, talk about – so, yes, I mean, I, I broadly speaking, yes, that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So – with that understood, um, one of the – so I am – I think that's legitimate and should continue uh, this sort of – I'm happy to say suppression of uh, neo-Nazi speech. 
But the reason I'm comfortable with that is because there's an extremely broad cultural consensus mm. among not only intellectual elites, but among the populace in general, that that uh, that those kinds of claims that the way Nazis uh, see not only morality and politics, but just the way they describe the world, just sort of empirical claims, are all wildly false. I mean, it's almost, this is kind of an aside, but uh, Michael Shermer has this weird argument where he thinks that, he tries to argue that, like, the Nazis were wrong because their ideology justified their actions, their atrocities and their wars and so forth. And I, I've sort of thought about that. And I ask myself the question, does the does Nazi ideology, if you just take it as true without argument, does it justify what Nazis did? And the answer I came up with is that world is such a funhouse mirror kind of, I, I just don't know which way is up. I don't know how to sort of operate in conceptual space when my priors are that weird. So all this is to say, yeah, with ideas that wacky and when everyone kind of, or 99 out of a hundred people agree they're wacky, we can kind of put them to one side. That is absolutely not the case in uh, what the, what, what the gender critical people are arguing. It's very clear that a very significant contingent of our sort of intellectual elites, uh, people who are hopefully thinking about this uh, more, more rigorously than anyone else and are paid to do that, don't all agree with it, including people who are very high up in the philosophy world, um, who yeah. is the who is the philosopher of biology? Alex, was it Alex Byrne? I Alex Byrne. Right. Alex Byrne um, um, wrote a pretty devastating essay that he then got he got defenestrated from a journal over it. Um, um, oh, he's, really? an, he's an MIT professor. Yeah, yeah. It was it, it was a reported in later reports. I'll link I'll link to it. I'll link to the the whole the whole saga. Um, um, but yes, and then with regard to the general public, not only is there no consensus, there's actually an overwhelming consensus on the opposite side of it, right? I mean, ordinary people, if you poll them, right, are probably to the tune of 80 to 90% going to say women are female, right? <laughs> and are going to say my 12-year-old daughter should be able to be in a, in a changing room without males in it um, and are going to say that, you know, a, a girl running track um, should not have to run against or, or playing, you know, uh, whatever sport should not have to go up against some hulking behemoth of a guy um, um, who identifies as a, as a woman. Um, and so it's not even that there's a, cons that, that there's not a consensus. There's an overwhelming consensus on the opposite side, right? Theirs is the way unpopular position publicly speaking. So, you know, it's 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 an interesting position then, right? I mean, to say it should be banned because 0.04% of the population doesn't like it or claims to be harmed by it. I mean, that's just a weird 
weird position to take. Well, uh, my, even if uh, they're obviously not going to say that the consensus is against them, but see that point, okay? They cannot credibly claim that there is a consensus either in the intellectual community or in the broader public. Yes, certainly. And that yes. raises very, very important issues of democratic and liberal legitimacy. Is um, Explain. In the absence of that consensus, you do not have a right to force your opinion on either the intellectual class or on the broader public. Um, it is the public's, the public is supposed to, um, to rule the country. It's the demos is supposed to be the crosses. The, they're supposed to be, the government is supposed to do its bidding, not the other way around. Doesn't always work that way, but that's the ideal we hold up, right? So, it's uh, inherently undemocratic to try to force your opinion on those people, except insofar as you can persuade them of it. What about the, so, so, But what about here? The um, at this is a point at which they will typically invoke the public-private sort of sort of distinction. They're going to say, "Look, you know." Um, um, it's not undemocratic for a private organization to not invite somebody. Which is all that we're talking about. We're talking about a private organization uh, deciding yeah, to not but, invite, deciding to not invite uh, a speaker or to disinvite a speaker. I mean, these are the people who are the first to say that the personal is political and uh, it doesn't matter if it's a a public or private organization. First of all, it is a public German organization, but um, uh, the effect of their behavior, in fact, the strategic political intent of their behavior is to uh, prevent these issues from being debated such mm -hmm. that everyone at least um, conforms to or espouses these beliefs, whether or not they sincerely believe them. And that's just um, disregarding the autonomy uh, and the right to self-rule of the broader public. Yeah. So I mean, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's absolutely a political issue. Both sides. I'm happy to say my, I'm taking a political stance here and saying that this speech should be permitted. Um, but of course, <laughs> I mean, most of the time these guys are happy to present themselves as political crusaders or political activists or people trying to make a political difference. So if anybody wants to say they're not being political now, that simply will not do. I mean, it's just not credible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What would you, I mean, what's the, so it's funny. You get, you get, you get, dis, you get pushback on a lot of this from all sides, right? So obviously the, the super woke progressive types push back against this, but I, I've also been getting actually, 
over at Electric Agora, a lot of pushback on this kind of stuff from Kevin Curry Knight, who's sort of on the libertarian side. Mm-hmm. And what he's going to say is like, what, what he's going to say is, my friend, I think I just published a comment that he wrote today on, on, an, on an essay. Um, he's going to say, it's funny that with all this censorship, there's just so much damn talk going on about it, right? I mean, you know, in other words, you know, he's going to point to the fact that you and I are doing discussing it right now, right? I mean, um, no one's um, listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, but then he's going to say, "Oh, so what you're saying is that, not that you have a right to free speech, but you have a right to speech on the popular platforms." Um, and he's going to say that's not a right he's aware of. Um, um, well, Andrew Sullivan and. Barry Weiss and people, uh, uh, who else has been, uh, Matt Iglesias, they do because, I mean, they met the standards of their editors for years. They were, they had the resumes, they built their way up the chain. Um, they got a following and they would have, uh, those jobs at, uh, New York Magazine, Fox, and the New York Times. Yeah. Except that people actively excluded them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what? What? Look, with the with the. Listen, I don't agree with this criticism either. I'm just trying to sort of provide some. No, uh, no. In fact, let me, because what you said is absolutely right. It's, um, my, I am marching to the tune now of against the squishes. Um, because that's where the action is. I had this argument a long time ago with Arya. Yeah. Where I emailed him and I and he and I said he'd been talking to Robbie Suave of Reason, and I said um, I disagree with everything he said during this interview, and I'd like to talk to you about it, and let's do a dialogue. And he said no. Uh, I. I'm I'm, sure, I'm assuming I'm permitted to say these things. And it's not sorry, Aria. But um, he said, no, let's try to find somebody sort of more resolutely on the other end. And I said to him, no, you're exactly the person I have to convince. Right. I'll never convince them. Right. I have to convince the people in the middle. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, uh, was it Robert who's been saying this? Uh, Kevin Curry Knight's been saying this. Kevin, uh, Kevin's yeah, been saying yeah, this. So, yeah. um, Bob Wright has been saying this. God, Dan Dresner, I just want to slap him. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, it's the squishy middles who are going to kill us. There's yeah. this great. Um, there's this great sort of uh, insight that Gary Saul Morrison had, which he didn't publish. His friend Robert Alter. Um, which, by the way, these are two um, mighty literary scholars, two people who have made enormous contributions to literary criticism. Um, uh, so Morrison, who's a Slavist, um, came up with what he called the Morrison rule, which is if 20% of your department is... Um, run by radicals. Yeah. They now they now control the department. Yeah. Um so cuz he and just break that down. So most places like every couple of weeks, 3 weeks, the faculty meet and have a faculty meeting and what they talk about ends up 
defining a lot of how the department runs. Um, so people understand. Um, and, you know, obviously similar things happen in businesses and um, all kinds of organizations. We've certainly seen teacher meetings uh, in uh, public school you, that New York education City public, That New York City public school one is just unbelievable. With the, with the guy with the black baby on his lap is just an unbelievable. I'm, I know someone who teaches around there. and <laughs> I, No, I, I mean. It's shocking. Right. If you leave philosophy, <laughs> grad school, and don't get a job in philosophy, which is most people who leave philosophy, grad school, generally they say be a lawyer or a teacher. So being an ex-philosophy graduate student, I know a lot of teachers, and I've had multiple people, including people I haven't talked to for a long time, reach out to me to talk about how dark things are in education, that this kind yeah. of consensus is really impeding their ability to do their job is in that they're don't I've one person uh, told me that, you know, he's just doesn't feel like he's able to educate his students into a kind of bring them into an atmosphere where the truth is really respected. Yeah. Um, but the, the Morrison rule is that if 20% of your department is radical, well, 20% of your department, at least, most good departments are going to be the corner office guys. That's what I always call them. They don't show up for committee work. Maybe they're on faculty search, but the, they're not uh, director of undergraduate students, not director of graduate students, not anything that involves a lot of real work. Yeah. It's not their research. They don't want to be involved. So they're just gone. So just take away that 20%. You've got 80%. Okay. Now take away the 20 who are radicals, that's 60% left. Now that 60% in the middle, half are just going to defer to the radical 20% because they don't want to be called out. Out of fear. They don't, out of out fear. Of, not just fear, a mixture of fear and that they're, the radicals are generally, their heart's in the right place. Yeah, and, misguided kindness and fear. <laughs> yeah, well, it's... Um, you know, the radicals are strident against racism and sexism and classism and the other isms. And most of us agree, especially in the bleeding heart world of the academy, that those things are serious problems and that they should be opposed. So it makes it hard. Um, <laughs> do you remember years ago? We had a brief conversation about the Green Dot Collective. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yes. You said they I came to, to Missouri, right? I had to suffer through a presentation on that in my department. They were trying to implement it in our, in our college. And I just um, – I gave this poor woman who did the presentation the worst time that, of her life. Um, yeah, good and, to you. I would have to. And um, – just sort of categorically rejected. And I also, I told her also that she was just ignorant. I mean, she was just, you know, spouting, you know, the one in four statistic and all, all this sort of bogus stuff. Um, and I just, you know, that I just told her was false and was demonstrably false. Um, but um, it didn't wind up going anywhere. I don't know. I mean, one or two of the faculty put the green dot thing on their door. And other than that, I never heard from it again. So. Yeah, no, it, I mean, the green dot, it's, it's actually, they're the wokest of the woke. I, I've never seen a more distilled 
and I've looked. Uh, I've never seen a more distilled kind of statement of woke ideology. And they go around the academy and they try to tell people things like don't make a joke about rape because that'll create a culture in which people yeah. get raped, et cetera, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember when they came to your town, we were, we emailed a little and you said, I can't believe nobody's, um, nobody's critiquing this. That I'm the only person I, sitting here complaining about this. Yeah. And I said, I can believe it <laughs> because who wants to, who wants to stand up to the anti-rape people? Yeah. Who, who wants to risk being tarred as pro-rape? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, as absurd as that is, right? It's ridiculous, but uh, yeah, that's what happens. Yes, you know. Yes, uh, and with social media, it happens in a way that's sort of terrifying because you can, in a minute, become just the target of such object of so much attention that it's a kind of a terrifying, uh, a terrifying prospect. I mean, you know, yeah. No, I was gonna say what I was gonna say was you know, and I don't know if it adds to this, and if it doesn't, you can just ignore it. But I mean. Part of my argument with Kevin Curry Knight was that, look, you know, yes, it is strictly speaking true that um, if, if, you know, if you, if you don't, if the major platforms don't want to host me, um, that I am still allowed to speak and that I can even, and not just in terms of the government allowing it, I can even create my own uh, platform in which to, and listen, that's largely what I've done, right? I mean, that's, Half the reason for creating Electric Agora and, and doing all this is to have my own platform that I control, right? Um, um, hey, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, no, I'll, I'll do all of that, but let me just finish the Morrison rule. Yeah, okay. Oh, um, there's more to the Morrison rule. Okay, so yeah, no, but 40% the, the are too scared to, or too nice to complain. 30%. 30% are too nice. 20% are the radicals. So 50%. Boom, voting majority yeah. um, all the time. Yeah. And that's how these dynamics play out all yeah. across. That's, that's, how, that's how James Bennett lost his job. That's how um, Andrew Sullivan got fired. Guarantee you. Um, is, that how, is that how Hannah Nicole Jones got a Pulitzer? Absolutely. What a dreadful. Because there had to be people on the Pulitzer Committee saying this is just shite. I mean, this is absolute shite, right? I mean, look, you can't and, imagine, you know, right? Is, so, I'm, as I said, I'm talking to the squishers now, the yeah. moderate guys, the people. So it's our job. We're both good at being assholes, and, you know, and that's, that's a great gift in life. As um, I've always, I've always been very happy about it. I mean, a lot, some other yeah. people aren't, but I mean, <laughs> you know, can I tell? God, I'm full of stories today. But, you know, my father told me this story when I was a boy. Okay. Um, uh, he was riding a bus in Boston. And, you know, my father was from a, you know, scrappy kind of uh, neighborhood. Not, not terrible, but people were tough. Uh, Boston in the 60s. And he was on the bus and a guy came onto the bus with the milkshake. And now, if you've lived in a city, you're not supposed to take a milkshake on the bus, but people do it all the time, and nobody really cares Yeah, 99% of the time. Right. But the bus driver stopped this kid and said, 
you need to take that, you need to throw that away or else wait for the next bus. Yeah. And the kid opened the milkshake, poured it in the till, and then walked off the bus. <laughs> and, I would totally do that. <laughs> and, you know, my father, my father wanted me to see it from the point of view of the bus driver. And he said, if you tell a hundred guys to take their milkshake off the bus, one of them's going to pour it in the till. Yeah. And that's, that's important for like, if you're, if you flip off a hundred guys on the road, sooner or later, one of them's going to shoot you <laughs> pull, pull a gun or scratch your car or whatever it is. So don't, my wife don't, always reminds me of this whenever, um, I was in the supermarket the other week and somebody had his mask, wasn't wearing a mask. And I walked up to him and I said, do you think you're like fucking special or something? Like what the fuck? <laughs> and I told my wife about this. I was so proud of myself. And she's like, are you crazy? Everybody in this town has a fucking gun. Are you nuts? Yep. Right. And she got all mad at me. I was so proud of myself and she got mad at me. So. No, yeah, your wife was right. Yeah. Don't, don't poke the bear, you know, cause sooner or later the bear will get angry, but <laughs> You know, the older I get, the more in life, so much power is exerted that people will trust that you won't pour the shake in the till. Yeah. There's an incredible amount of power in, I'm going to say this and you're not going to challenge me on it because we're social creatures and it's hard to sort of step up and say, no, actually not. And... It's very important when it's something important and when speaking can do something about it. And I think in this case meets both criteria to just stop and say, no, that's not a rule. I'm not going along with that. You have no right to tell me that. Um, so the metaphor is not perfect because ostensibly the bus driver does have a right to tell him not to have to shake. But, you know, these people have not even that. Yeah, there's there's no official rule saying that we get to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I pointed that out. Listen, I mean, one of these one of these episodes that I wrote about involved. It was different. It was not that the gender critical people got deplatformed. It was that the other people refused to share the platform with them. And so, in a sense, destroyed the event. Right. Yeah. And they actually this was uh uh, Robin Dembroff and Rebecca Kukla. I, I, I always, it's terrible, but I do this all the time. I constantly, I always think of them as Kukla, Fran and Ollie, which was a, which was a children's show back in the sixties that I used to watch with really ugly puppets. And whenever I, whenever I think of this whole crowd because of Rebecca Kukla, I just call them in my mind. I call them Kukla, Fran and Ollie. I'm going to have to do an essay with that in it. But, um, and at the time, they even coined a word. They said, we have been non-consensually co-platformed with Kathleen Stock. And I said, I wrote I'm music. I'm so glad you reminded me of that phrase. I said, yeah. there is no such standard in our discipline. Yeah. You have no right to not be platformed with somebody, right? I mean, that's just not a thing. You just invented that, right? I mean, you how, how dare you think that you should decide who all the other contributors right, are you right. wouldn't accept them uh getting rid of you right but then again of course what did they say well you wouldn't make a jew go on a panel with a nazi you wouldn't make you we know. promised to address that yeah. um and i i okay so i've i should have written this piece long ago sorry but 
Um, this is, I've, I've been thinking of doing a series called Tropes of the Illiberal, because uh, what Kevin laid on you there is a classic of, um, you're awfully so silent, you're awfully noisy for being so silenced, or... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You're, you're annoyed the you shit know, out of me. I, I, I like I, him so much that it's all right, but I was really annoyed when he wrote it, because it's so stupid and shallow, and... He can't possibly think that, really, right? I mean, I mean, <laughs> or, but, see, my, or, but, but I don't know. What's your answer? I mean, my answer to him, now you tell me if this is the same for you, right? My answer to him is that, look, in, the, in certain environments, a platform can effectively become the public square. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I said, look, we may begin to the point where the social media companies are essentially public utilities. I mean, they're essentially functioning as the public square such that yeah nobody's stopping you from creating a website but that that that's like saying well you can't stand in any of the streets in the city you can stand on the street all the way down you know where nobody lives right and is going to ever hear you or see you right um um, they've always conceived of themselves as a little like public utilities especially the the old network tv shows Yeah. Was they they conceived of it as uh, where the networks with the federal government made us we're going to provide some news as a public service yeah, and yeah. we don't care. And the New York times and all of them will at least pay lip service to the idea that yeah. we will do things. And they put their money where their mouth is a fair number of times. They just published a Ben Smith article, which he was very critical of the New York times top brass, yeah. his own bosses. It got published. That was the right thing to do. Good. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, go on. But no, I, I, so I was I just have... going to say is that, and is that, look, you know, you can't be so pure, so, so sort of formal about this, right? I mean, the line between public and pri- private is kind of blurry, especially when we get into these kinds of areas, these companies now are so enormous and the platforms are so large that they are effectively, they are effectively the public square at this point. And so when you when you remove people from them, you're effectively censoring them almost as effectively as a government would, right? To a certain extent. Uh, I mean, they can talk, but nobody's listening. The, nobody's listening, right? Because right. that, that's what I said earlier. Right, right. The, here's the point, okay? We are the effect of this stuff of all these uh, pressure campaigns and all this denouncing is that people are getting shoved into these ghettos mm. or where they're silos, where they're only talking to like-minded people. Um, New York hired a bunch of woke people or, you know, has published a bunch of woke people. And Andrew Sullivan was also there. So everybody who bought the magazine, whether they were woke or anti-woke, got both. Yeah. You know, the yeah. anti-woke had got um, Andrew Sullivan delivered to the door and the woke uh, got, or and the anti-woke got the woke delivered to their door. Yeah. Right. So that was important. Now, Andrew Sullivan's on Substack. The only people who sign up for that, the are only the people, people who, who agree with them him. Right. are the people who already agree with him. Right. Um, the same thing will happen to Barry Weiss. Um, this, the... I always thought it was great. And that, Glenn um, Greenwald and, and, 
and yeah. um, um, what's his face? Uh, the Greenwald situation was a little more complicated, I thought. But No, I'm just talking about the effect of the Substack model. The oh, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. The effect of saying, okay, you know, agree, saying, acceding to Kevin Curry Knight and say, oh, yeah, you're right. I can just go make a silo over here and I can go, right? But now you've, you've destroyed public discourse. There isn't any. Yes, right? right. No, I always thought it was great that Katie Herzog wrote for the same magazine that launched Lindy West. I agree. There, yeah, you know, um, and that I mean, I'm glad of, that she's surviving, but not having her at the stranger is not a, is not nobody's benefited, right? Um, right. And so, people say, "Well, you're awfully noisy for being so censored, or you're awfully noisy for being so canceled." The question is not um, their ability to speak or their ability to uh, make a living so much, although that's an issue. The question is our ability to get to hear from them. That's what matters. I don't think the public at large has heard what Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter think about race, really. Not not in any kind of detail. They've heard right. Michelle Alexander, Charles Blow, Jamel Bowie, Ta-Nehisi Coates. They've heard them over and over again. They've bought their books and I because, they, because their stuff appears in non-siloed, non-niche media. Right. And it's, it's not about just the ability to speak anywhere. It's about our ability as a society to metabolize that information and to foster a kind of um, debate and build a consensus. You yeah. know, that's... Uh, uh, Chomsky and his author took um, Lipman's phrase manufacturing consensus and made it into something nefarious. But manufacturing consensus is exactly what liberal democracies are in the business of doing. And yeah. our, our continued existence as a liberal democracy, and no, I am not, be, I'm, I'm going to debate my friend here because I think liberal democracy is in a separate show because I think liberal democracy in America is in extreme peril right now. Um, to be but, fair, though, about Lippmann, I mean, I think it's, it's in this phrase is manufacturing, uh, Lip- it's manufacturing consent, not consensus. But to yeah, be fair, I mean, Lippmann was talking about the manipulation of the masses by technocrats, right? I mean, he really was. I, I mean, I, I mean, it, so, it's, it's, he, he was, he was, he was, channeling stuff from edward bernays and this whole thing about of using propaganda right um not really Lippmann believed that 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 modern industrial technological society simply was too complicated um uh, that the average voter just simply was not going to be qualified or competent to vote on a whole number of issues that involve these things that require expertise to understand right Okay, well, we shouldn't get lost on Lippmann. Dewey yeah, framed him that. Dewey framed him that way, and he's been stuck with it ever since. Um, I think his position is a lot more reasonable than has generally been received, okay. and, and and I think his vision has, to a reasonable extent, become true. Where we rely upon experts to decide, like the Office of Management and Budget. To yeah, well, say, I agree with if that. We, yes, if we do, um, if if we do X, it'll have why effect on the deficit, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And that's 
I think that was really Lippmann's position, at least yeah. in public opinion. Yeah. But um, go on. Yeah, it's our ability to um, have out these differences because these political differences exist in in the culture. There is no consensus on it. So if you try to do an end run around public discourse and try to coerce people or shame them into going along with something, uh, they will get very angry and resentful. They will not see anything that any legislation that passes as democratic or legitimate. They will not see the changes in culture that are wrought that way as democratic and legitimate, which is, we, we you know, the GTRs of the world love to uh, mock people say who say you can't say Merry Christmas anymore or, you know, you have to be so politically correct these days or, you know, they're obviously deplorables who just want to say racist and sexist things in public, uh, which is not true at all empirically. But, the, you know, but what those people are talking about, all those voters is that they feel coerced and uh, shamed into behaving in ways that they don't agree with. Well, guess what? They're right. Yeah. And if you continue to try to um, make cultural change that way, you're going to feed a terrible backlash. I th- listen, I argue that this is partly what gave us Trump. Yep, absolutely. Um, um, and I think and that's and I think, every yeah. And, and what's his face? Um, the guy, the guy who wrote the piece in the New York Times. Um, the Charles Blow. No, 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 no. The guy who um, agrees with that. Um, he was one of the few liberals that Mark argued, Lilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think. Listen, I think that's what give us. I think what you're describing is the death of public discourse mm-hmm. and the loss of belief in public authorities, right? Such that you then, everybody is now retracted to a silo and there's no longer consensus. There's just warfare and victory, which then means that the defeated are embittered in a way that Mm -hmm. they wouldn't be otherwise, right? And they feel entitled to strike back in a liberal way because they were coerced. And so coercion is uh, just being reciprocal. Yep. It's, you know, entirely, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and by the way, when I say that this was a major force behind Trump, you know, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates and Jamel Bowie love to declare that we're being unempirical while they, in their work, do not show any familiar, demonstrate any familiarity with the empirical record. Um, I've read Catherine Kramer's great study of... Uh, rural Wisconsin. Uh, Robert Wuth now wrote a great study of rural America. Um, Probably the most important book is Vanessa William and Theta Scotchpole's study of the Tea Party. Arlie Russell Hochschild also um, wrote a great book about, uh, she embedded with the Tea Party in uh, Louisiana for several years. so I'm not making this up. They, yeah. they, all those, that's great. Four pieces of book length, great field research. And they all converge that, um, 
large swaths of the public feel disrespected, um, coerced, and that um, participating in cultural life in America means being disingenuous um, for them. And um, uh, to to piggyback on your other point, because it's a very million point, is if you coerce everybody to say something, that changes the meaning of the of what's said. Now, uh, Donald Davidson made this point in passing in the famous uh, paper on the very idea of a conceptual scheme. That's right. He said, um, if you have a bureau, a kind of ministry of truth, um, <clears throat> demand that everybody use the word, some word in this way, um, I, I don't know, say the word woman is a gender construct and, or is a social c- construct and it bears no relationship to biological sex yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. And everybody, we're all wearing collars. So every time Kathleen Stock says something that doesn't jive with that, she gets a little electric shock. And eventually everyone goes along with this orthodoxy. Well, what would happen? And um, Davidson says, well, we wouldn't know what they meant anymore. Yeah. And that's, and if you look at North Korea, <laughs> you know, and I, I realize, you know, North Korea, well, I'll put a pin in that as well. Um, it, you know, people have, journalists have gone over there and, talk to people and they've seen people making these incredible demonstrations before pictures of the dear leader and effusing. And there's this sort of um, question, are they being sincere? Are they afraid of being punished? And, you know, some journalists have said, if it's, you know, if you live in a place like North Korea, it's hard to know what the difference is anymore. Yeah. It's just, it, it, People want to act like if we just coerce people, then that'll be like everybody will have that sincere autonomous belief. Yeah. That's not how it works. Yeah. They're, they're reasoning people out there in the right. public just like you. Yeah. They have opinions and justifications, and they might be right or wrong, but they have a thought process and right. a way of justifying themselves. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to do uh, the you wouldn't ask a Jew to debate a Nazi? That's another trope of the illiberal because we we promised to. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's look, it's obviously a crazy thing to say for one because it's a crazy analogy, right? I mean, there's nothing remotely analogous between Kathleen Stock. Um, yeah, um, uh, and, good that and ta- we say that. Right, and talking about you know that you know we should you know bio, you know that 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 the female sex matters and that discrimination against women historically has largely been sex-based having to do with their reproductive function and capacity, um, which is just as a matter of history, a fact, right? I mean, it's not, that's not really not disputable. Um, and um, I mean, that's the reason why women weren't allowed to vote. It's why they weren't allowed to roll property. It's why they were thought to be emotional and irrational and all this sort of stuff. Right. Um, that's not analogous to having a Jew have to sit on a panel with a Nazi um, but it's also kind of not true in the sense that, I mean, I could imagine in, 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 in situations yes. in which a Jew would have to sit on a panel with a Nazi. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, um, um, 
and as a purely legal matter, um, we permitted Nazis to march to sh- march right through a neighborhood full of Holocaust survivors, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, so it's not even really true, right? Um, um, but even yeah, that's- it's, it's also not an apt. It's both a bad analogy and a dishonest analogy. They have to know that's a bad analogy. But I also think it's not even true. I mean, yeah, sure, you might have to share a platform with a with a Nazi. Yeah. So two things. One is I'm glad you said what you said, and I I want to affirm it and maybe even say it more strongly, because we get into these analogical arguments. You know, like you wouldn't shout at a black guy. You wouldn't ask a Jew to to debate a Nazi. Um, and we, I, I don't know how to engage this issue without doing a disservice to Kathleen Stock and Julie Bindle and all the rest of them. And I'm so sorry, and I wish I knew a way. But let me just affirm, these are humane, reasonable people. They're super gen- liberals. They're fuck half of them are Marxists. Like, I mean, like, you know, Judy, Julie Bindle's entire career has been like, Defending women who have been incarcerated after they've murdered or, mm-hmm. or, or you know, husbands that had been raping them and, and beating them for decades. I mean, you know, she, 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 she's been fighting international sex trafficking and going to hell holes all over the place where girls are, can't be educated. And it's what the hell has Robin Dembroff ever done? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, she doesn't even she's not even fit to share the same stage with Julie Bindle from that perspective. And now she's posing. And, and it just it. My problem with this is that I get so blind, angry at it that um, I have a difficulty kind of engaging it in a way that's, I think, productive um, 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 because I, I it makes me so mad. Yeah, they're um, really and I, I have no problem with people disagreeing with them, but the idea. Yeah, they're good people. They've demonstrated that. They've demonstrated that in actions. They've given their whole professional lives to pursuing causes. They really care about um, not Some only... Some of these people are the major icons of the movement. I mean, come on, look, Jermaine Greer? These are huge figures. I mean, this is like this is like this is like deplatforming Andrea Dworkin, or 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 you know what I'm saying, or Benny Friedan. I mean, it's insane. It's madness, right? Yeah, and uh, and so they've. They are not anything like Nazis or overt racists, and to say to say they are is ridiculous. And um, I just want to point that out. Yes. And they're also talented philosophers, and their arguments. I don't. I'm not convinced by them. Uh, yet again, I'm not a gender critical person. Um, I'm much more gender affirming, but their arguments are worthwhile, and I feel I've taken things away from them and aspects of my thinking have changed by yeah, engaging. There's certainly them. nothing about them that would suggest that they can't be on a freaking panel. Yeah. Right. I mean, and the idea that the, either they're just these terrible people just under the skin and nobody's noticed, or that they're so sloppy that they can't really do philosophy. Both of those are just false and it's ridiculous. But then what about the harm claims? Uh, again, I mean, we go back to the expansion of the harm principle. They're um, claiming that being just being in a room with Kathleen Stock harms right. them. But l- let's let's do the the Nazi because that, that addresses that too. Yeah. Um, the old because that this is another trope of the liberal is um, you wouldn't expect a Jew to debate a Nazi, and uh, my answer to that is yes, I would. 
Um, so would so, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the consensus. So as I said, we now have a very good, thank God, consensus that pretty much Nazis everything Nazis are bad. Um, I wish we could revive, remember in Blues Brothers where he says like, I, I hate, hate Illinois, Illinois Nazis. Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. But there like, was a time when it wasn't a consensus. I mean, there was a time when there was right. a substantial portion of the country that wanted to side with Germany. And we, we need to You have to, to have those that. debates. You have to have if, them. If the consensus breaks down in the future, which I'm worried about. We'll have to way, have that argument again. We will have to have that debate. If we lose that consensus. That's right. We will have to have that debate. And yes, Absolutely. If, that deb- if there's a real chance of some kind of neo-Nazi movement taking political power in America, you, you're damn right I'll be looking not at some Jew down the street, but Jews who are right. People well, that's who are said, intellectuals. David, that's why I said if David Duke wins a, wins a Senate seat, you're yes. gonna he's gonna you're gonna have to put him on the damn news program. Yep. Right. And we're gonna do act like he's not there. I mean, that's ridiculous, and it doesn't help anybody. Right. Right. Um, the the whole thing is we need to redirect our energy away from kind of controlling what's said. To convincing people of these values. Of the importance and, of it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in, I am done with the sort of woke nihilism that you throw them in the basket of deplorables. They're not going to listen to you anyway. Um, Anastasia Bear wrote a great essay about Kate Mann. Uh, good on the Chronicle for pu- publishing that. Are oh, you talking about um, that br- that that brutal takedown, that, that evisceration? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that one. <laughs> well, one of many. But um, the sh- but the thing that she really focused on was at the end of the day, Kate Man just doesn't have a political program. She just describes the forces arrayed against us as so kind of invincible yeah. that there's almost nothing left to do. Fuck that. I'm I'm sick of it. Um, I we've seen. I've seen. I'm 32 years old. I've seen radical change in my lifetime in the attitude towards uh, gay people and gay marriage. I've I've changed. You know, I have a great blessing in life that I was a conservative Catholic. Um, you know, right wing person, and I'm now an atheist, liberal, left wing person. And I know I was never a terrible person. And I know I never just didn't care about the poor. And Wait a minute. You were a Catholic? Yeah. I thought you were Jewish. No. I was certain of it. No. There's nothing Jewish about me. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no I always... Um, Nobody's I, ever uh, said that to you, that they thought you were Jewish? No. I mean, we're, I always see Jews as... Fellow travelers, you know, we're all good immigrant people in the Wasps America. Um, but yeah, no, I, I cannot. Uh, Listen, you're 30. I'm 52. Right. Imagine the progress change I've seen, right? I can remember. Or Glenn Lowry. When, I can remember when the only women in offices were secretaries. Yeah. I can remember it. Right? My mother got a doctorate in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's been cr- incredible cultural change, and um, that's been wrought mainly by... Um, Consensus you know, forming. Gloria Allred and... Um, 
you know, as much as I disagree with her on all sorts of stuff, Catherine McKinnon yeah. on sexual harassment really proved that was an issue, um, that it mattered. It wasn't just jokes or locker room talk. It, yeah. was, it made a difference in people's lives. You know, those, the lawsuits, the op-eds, the, yeah. the, uh, the, yeah. Tell the polemical. Well, you're basically look, the, and the picture you're painting is basically if we keep doing this, we're never going to have those kinds of changes again, right? Because because the, they are dependent upon a consensus that arises out of public discourse, right? And if you if you don't have any public discourse, or if everybody's in a silo, they're never going to have the, that consensus form around these kinds of things again. And, and um, it, it'll actually retard the progress. It will not accelerate it, right? Absolutely. And um, when it breaks down, and that that political situation is untenable long-term for a liberal democracy. So I, if we continue down that path, I think we will see America become a hybrid regime, uh, which is what the political scientists call it. Uh, along the lines of uh, Russia, Hungary, Turkey, uh, maybe Brazil, we'll see what's happening, um, where we have a much, I mean, we've taken several steps in that direction already with the um, executive branch becoming more and more uh, yeah. uh, powerful and unrestrained by the, the other imperial two presidency that's been building since the Second World War, yeah. 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 I just read Andrew Basevich's book, which is a, a really great, yeah. great critique of that. And, um, and it'll probably come from the right. We'll probably see president for life. Uh, if it's not Josh Hawley, if it's not Tom Cotton, it's some guy 20, 40, 60 right. years from now. Who and then all of this no consensual platforming crowd is going to be really sorry. Really desperately <laughs> sorry. No, I've, I say this all the time. It's like you do not know what you're asking for. Yeah. And, and the smug certitude mm-hmm. that comes when, a, when an ignorant, shallow, and historically unaware person is in a bubble in which they're empowered, is it's almost impenetrable. Like you can't. Like you could have this conversation with you know Robin Denbroff for a hundred years and you would never get anywhere, right? I mean, right, it, it which just, is which is why you need to talk to the squishy middle, right? the squishes, <laughs> yes, against the squishes. Okay, let's straighten Bob out. Let's straighten right. Dan Dresner out, and yeah. yeah, we, you know, no but, all right, yeah, no but, no but. Just why Justin Weinberg wants no but. That's rhetorically brilliant, right? And it's a big problem for me, and I'll admit it. Yeah. Because no but seems so reasonable. He can well, and no the- but is true in a sense, right? I mean, we don't allow libel. We don't allow, you know, uh, sedition. We don't allow, like, I mean, you know, we, there's, there's, there's that great line from The Exorcist, which is something like, the devil tells lies, but he mixes lies with the truth, and that's course, what yeah. makes him dangerous. Otherwise, it wouldn't work, right? I mean, you right. know, you yeah. catch on to you. Um, we're, we're going long, so I just do want to, because I, only, I have only about 15 minutes left. Um, I do want to, though, get to this one thing, because this does seem to me to be one of the hinges on which the whole thing turns. What is the answer to the expansion and invocation of the harm principle? Okay. Mm -hmm. They claim that merely being on a platform with Kathleen stock harms them. Okay. And that therefore 
within the frame of million liberalism, it is perfectly acceptable to silence and deplatform them. What is the response to that? The response to that is to reject the harm principle. Uh, we need to move beyond the harm principle. Oh, and wow. That's not yeah. my truth. I would say, oh, interesting. Okay. Um, we do need to get beyond the, the harm principle. And, so what should um, the constraining principle be then? So TM Scanlon um, wrote a inexplicably underutilized uh, essay about freedom of expression where he makes a fundamental point which has not been digested uh, in the freedom of speech discourse. Uh, and by the way, this turns Mill on its head um, where I think Mill's order of exposition, if anything, disguises the real uh, deep argumentative structure of his argument non-liberty. Um, so Scanlon's essential point is we often talk about setting a boundary around a certain uh, range of expressions and then justifying tolerance of them. He said, logically, that's really backwards. We have certain justifications for speech, and those justifications fix the boundary. Seeing that, it dissolves all these worries. Um, Gosh, we're going to have to do another dialogue in this because yeah. now I, this now unearths all sorts of things because I always connect million liberalism with the Lockean tradition mm -hmm. and won't what you just described make a mess of the idea of natural freedom. In other words, I thought the whole idea was, look, naturally there are no limits at all. <laughs> No, socially, there have to we, we impose them and order, you know, on the basis of a rational selfishness calculation, right? But if you're now saying no, 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 it's we, the, the starting position isn't unlimited, and then we limit for certain reasons. Doesn't that then make a mess of the the Lockean tradition? No, on the contrary, it illuminates it and um, okay. gets. Give me the, the brief version, but I think we should do another one on this on this part. Yeah. So maybe on Scanlon, um, but go ahead to explain to me. Give me the quick version on how it illuminates it. So what we want is in in the basic liberal schema, whether we're talking about Locke or Mill or any of the sort of classic exponents, is uh, a government that rules by consent of the people. Right. That goes all the way back to John Fortescue in right. the Middle Ages. It's essential. Right. Consent is essential to British political culture right. in the early modern and medieval era. Um, so but that's because the only legitimate source of authority is naturally yeah. is the individual. Sure. Right. So that yes, goes back absolutely. to this idea of natural equality and natural freedom. Right. Okay. So what we want is a kind of. Um, to use Rawls's language, a scheme that respects an individual's right while respecting every every other individual's rights, right? So, right. And, and that's where the harm principle comes in. No, well, no. What what we need to do is set up a process that accomplishes that, and that's liberal democracy. And we can talk about 
there are slightly different versions of liberal democracy from justificatory to uh, deliberative to, you know, and liberal theorists argue about these and those arguments are important, but whichever one we sort of settle on, um, the speech restrictions we put around speech are all justified in terms of assisting that process and um, excludes things which are not uh, conducive to furthering that process. Isn't, isn't that second part the harm principle? E- effective most of the time, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, but it also includes things where, um, you know, uh, people who are free speech skeptical or, you know, more restrictionist brought up that in uh, bringing down legal segregation, part of the argument was that it does psychological harm to black people that it makes our, you know, and they did studies with kids yeah. where yeah. they picked white dolls as being better or more attractive, just sort of, um, that it had a psychological impact on the people who lived under it. And I think that's correct and legitimate. Um, so there is such a thing as psychological harm, but there's also psychological harm that's completely avoidable, like the harm caused by segregation. And there's psychological harm that's unavoidable in the business of doing the work of liberal democracy. I would even go further and say that there's some psychological harm that's absolutely necessary for any absolutely. growth or for any growth or progress to, to occur. Right. I mean, yeah, or, at, the uh, indi- at the individual and the social level, right. Part of Lee Bollinger's famous argument, famous first amendment scholar is um, part of, in a sense, we should be grateful to some uh, uncivil speech because it gives us the opportunity to build the virtue of tolerance, yeah. which is essential for liberal democratic society or for, you know, I like to invoke the Republican tradition of the founders that yeah. I believe in deeply um, is we should want, we should revel enough of this, you know, using politics as a bad word or yeah. um, disparaging everything that is political. Politics is our birthright as citizens of a free republic. Yeah. And we should all rejoice in the dignity yeah. and in the, uh, the liberty of exercising our freedoms and in rising to our obligations as citizens in uh, the first Western republic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, listen, I mean, my, I mean, I, I do like the sound of that. I mean, I would have to really think about it and, and, and to see if I had, if I saw anything untoward about me, my inclination was simply to shore up the harm principle and to say, look, what cle- mill clearly means, right. And what's easily added is that Liberty is legitimately constrained when there is demonstrable, observable, in some way quantifiable harm, not anybody saying anytime, anywhere that they feel harmed, right? That, that, you know, in other words, because censorship is such a powerful instrument, yeah. 
with such enormous effects, the harm principle cannot mean mere subjective reports of discomfort, right? Um, um, and so my, my, my way of, of, sort of, of, of sort of responding to the Dembroffs of the world is to say, I understand that you think you've been harmed, but you've not been harmed in any sense that's relevant to the question of whether other people get to talk or not. The fact that you're uncomfortable is just too bad for you, okay? But unless, that, unless you can demonstrate harm, Mm-hmm. in some publicly observable way, right? Um, and in some way that is at least in principle quantifiable, such that it could be the subject of a tort or something else, right? Why should we just take your word for it? I mean, it, it, what you're asking for is too much power, right? For your, on just your say-so. In other words, I don't know why we can't just make that sort of a friendly amendment and then, we, then, that, then we're just okay. done with it, right? I think you made two arguments and didn't really distinguish between them. I, and I think both are true and both have insights and we shouldn't lose track of either of them. I agree with you that the, the conflation between kind of harm as my sort of internal bristling at what somebody else said and the more traditional harms is uh, unconvincing. It's, a, it's kind of just makes the concept too thin and amorphous to be useful. So that's all true. But I think actually it's not the most important thing. Um, The most important thing is uh, in part because public discussion is difficult for all of us. I'm a, you know, cis white male heterosexual, uh, you know, all the bad ones. Uh, And, you know, I'm amused where occasionally reading the woke, they think I, we just walk around like, yay. You're in charge. You're running the patriarchy, man. I mean, yeah, I know. you're rolling in it, right? I mean, you can see it. I mean, can, I can see it. I mean, you're just, you're, 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 but the benefits are just incredible, right? I mean, there's, yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, my invitation, you're, you're, in, to you're in the study in your mansion right now, aren't you? Right. The invitation to the meetings got lost in the mail, Um, but um, like it's it's hard for in the under the best circumstances for the people best prepared or most advantaged. Public, real public, moral, political conversations are difficult. Yeah, and you know sometimes yeah it's hard. It causes us some negative, you know, serious negative emotions. Too bad. Um, and you know, I'm sorry that it's harder for um, for people who are of some uh, traditionally disadvantaged group, and I get that, and I get that some things are harder for them than would be for me because of their own personal histories. But trust me, the best way forward is to learn the discipline of a citizen. Yeah. And to learn the Republican values and to return to uh, the Republican life. Yeah. That is what will serve you well. Yeah. No, I... I, And you will never create an infinite... The the whole woke idea is we will eventually create a world so carefully where all the television shows, all the songs on the radio, um, 
everything around us is so reflective of our values that there'll be this sort of easy reciprocity between everyone. Yeah. And we'll all sort of fit in and all the aches and pains will go away. I'm here to say that will never happen. There will always be difficulties. There will always be conflict. There will always be difference of, of values. Yeah. But we can be up to negotiating that. Yeah. 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 No, that's absolutely right. Um, you almost get the sense, you know, and I guess because there is some demographic truth to this about the generations mm-hmm. that they're just kind of thinking that if we just wait long enough for the, enough of the older people to die, the consensus that you talked about earlier yeah, will be yeah. so overwhelming that we won't or even the have white people are a smaller part of the population. Yeah. That we just won't have to have this conversation anymore. The problem is, is that, as you know, um, younger people turn into older people and their attitudes change. And um, as we saw from this last election, uh, the racial minorities don't always behave the way you think. And um, you can very easily confuse white progressive voices for um, speaking on behalf of minorities for what the minorities actually think. I mean, this Latinx thing is my favorite example, right? I mean something like 95% of, 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 of Latinos and Latinas have said they want nothing to do with this. Um, the, the people who want it the most are white people. Um, um, and, um, um, you know, so it's very easy to sort of uh, uh, forget, you know, what the realities are and to live in kind of a fantasy land, which is the result of the siloing that, that, that is the result of these other things we've been talking about. Um, There's no post-political future. Yeah, no, it's I politics to the end of time. Absolutely, politics is part of the human is part of the human condition. It's not going to go and away. That's not lamentable either. No, um, it's not. It's it's a it's it's a function of being social animals. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, we're not orangutans. We don't live solitarily. We are social, and um, this is never going to not be a, an issue that has to be settled. And as of now, liberal democracy is the best the best way we've found to navigate this aspect of our lives. And don't don't chuck it so easily or so fast or so cavalierly because you you're not going to like what you're going to get instead. And if 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 we have not seen that over the last four years, I don't know what else how else you could convince somebody. Right? The problem is when you point to Trump, then these people tell you, well, that's not why Trump won. Trump didn't won because of wokeism. Trump won because all those people are really racists. I'll have that argument. Because the empirical record does not bear that out. I know, I know. (laughs) Here's the last word, and then I got to go. Last word. Yeah, yeah. I I wanted to end on this. I was thinking this like an hour ago. Um, There is a sense in some of our anti woke fellow travelers that sort of like the dam is breaking, the tide's turning. Um, No. Uh, they, we're losing ground, if anything. Get ready, gird yourself, gird your loins. We're in a long fight, and we need to. Oh, step absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I so don't think this is going to be over while I'm while I'm still an active public intellectual. I think this is going to take. Yeah, grab a another rifle. generation. Yeah, it's grab a rifle time. So, because proverbially, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I hope so. Well, for us, we, I mean, we're the ones pushing for discourse, right? So, I mean, yeah. Um, God be, if you don't it, metaphorically grab a rifle, you may end up literally grabbing a rifle. Right, so. right, right. Well, David, thank you so much. Fascinating, really good stuff. Um, um, I do think you should write about that. Um, um, you said you were going to do an essay. I really, I really think you should. It's hugely important. It needs to be clearly articulated. Um, and um, I like this thing about 
moving beyond the harm principle. I've always thought we just need to amend the harm principle. And I like, I, I at least would want to hear a detailed story about moving beyond the harm principle um, and how that remains consistent with other elements of the liberal tradition. Um, but we'll have to take that up another time because I've got to take my yeah. dog Madison to the groomer. <laughs> It's my, my wife will murder me if I don't do it. So um, anyway, David, thank you so much. Thank you. And I'll see you the next time around. Take care. Ciao.